It seems that everyone these days is identifying with some cause or other. For many, it's the cause of racial equality. Uh, For some, it is feminism or environmentalism. We have certainly seen in recent days people stepping forward with a Marxist socialist cause, decrying positions of power, pushing governmental redistribution of wealth, replacing the nuclear family with the village, and striving to erase United States history. We have anarchists on the left, and we have conspiracy theorists on the right, and then on top of all that, you just throw in a pandemic, which presses us to join a cause, to pick a side, as if this were a civil war dividing families and friends and churches. It's a day of causes. If that's not enough, let's throw in a presidential election and the fact that civilization itself, it depends on the results, we are told, by both sides. And it is a time, definitely, of sides. It's all just about enough to make one long for heaven, but willing to settle for Mars, is it not? A recent cartoon shows a space official staring out the window in disbelief at this long line coming up to the NASA building. Ooh, this is sensitive today. This thing's got a cause, too. There it is. I told them our Mars probe didn't take passengers, but they won't listen. (laughs) You kind of understand, don't you? Sometimes you just feel like maybe it's time to get out of here, wherever it is. But in this day of polarizing causes, an escape to Mars might seem appealing. But seriously, children of God, followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be right here, right now. We have a cause. We have a cause like none other on earth. And we are participants in that most glorious cause in all of the universe. Acts 1 reminds us this. It brings us back to the reality check of who we are, what our calling is, and what is the true cause to which we have been called by Christ. In fact, I would say that Acts 1 implies that we have no cause on earth until our lives synchronize with the ongoing cosmic conquest of the risen Christ. Apart from that cause, moving my life into the various aspects of this world, I have no cause. I live for really nothing. I live only for what will burn and end. So we need to come back from time to time to the reality check of Acts chapter 1 that reminds us who we are, that reminds us of the real world that is there, the world that so few realize and look to. So coming back to Acts 1, I invite us to soak in this chapter, this rich chapter today and Lord willing next week. Let's remember as we do that, that Luke's gospel focuses on the earthly ministry of Jesus our Lord. Remember, it's a, it's a tandem work, His, the book of Luke, the book of Acts working together. And then the gospel of Luke, dealing with Christ's earthly ministry, followed then by Acts, presenting a historical record of the primitive church and how that church continued forward with the cause of Christ. That's what we're dealing with here in the book of Acts. In Acts 1, focusing on two concluding acts of Christ's earthly ministry. 
The first are the post-resurrection, is the post-resurrection ministry of Jesus. So after he dies, rises from the dead, there is a ministry to his apostles, particularly before he ascends to heaven. Secondly is that idea of Jesus' ascension to heaven. So he leaves earth. He leaves in his ministry. He came to this earth in ministry, and he leaves. It was a temporary assignment for Christ. We'll also consider then uh, verses 12 through 14. So in verses 1 through 8, his post-resurrection ministry. In verses 9 through 11, his ascension into heaven. And then in verses 12 through 14, we look at what comes next. We just start into that idea, and Lord willing, pick it up next week. But let's note, first of all, Jesus' post-resurrection ministry to his apostles. This we can break down into three lines of thought, the first in verses 1 through 3, that Jesus provides the apostles with irrefutable proof that he is alive. Verses 1 through 3, I wrote, wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, this referring, of course, to Luke's gospel, the gospel according to Luke, which detailed the history of what Jesus began to do and to teach. What does that assume? If you begin to do something, the book of Acts now will detail what Jesus continues to do. This he began, now he will continue, not on earth, but from heaven. So Luke's gospel covers Jesus' life up until verse 12, all that he began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up after he had given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So that's dealt with in that last chapter of Luke, and now Luke says, I'm picking up where I left off with the account of Christ. Till the day he was taken up, until his ascension, verse 2, after he had given orders through the Holy Spirit to his apostles. We cannot emphasize enough the significance of this group, the apostles, in Acts chapter 1. These are now the 11 men chosen and commissioned and sent out as Christ's authoritative representatives. Jesus commissioned these apostles, we find here, through the Holy Spirit, who will soon mediate the words and the presence of Jesus to the apostles. To these witnesses, verse 3, we read, after he had suffered, that speaks of Jesus' death, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So in this post-resurrection ministry, Jesus, after his death, after his resurrection, appears to the apostles. He appears to other disciples as well. He's appearing to them over a period of 40 days. Remember, we have Passover, Jesus' death, then following his resurrection, to Pentecost, 50 days later. During that 50-day stretch, there are 40 days where Jesus apparently intermittently at varying locations, to various groups, and to individuals, appears to his disciples, giving many proofs. If we read the Greek language as our first language, that idea of many proofs, we would understand to be a technical term often used in the legal uh, arena 
as evidence of some criminal act or some issue of law, or sometimes it was even used as a medical diagnosis. Here are the technical proofs that we present for this reality. That word is used by Dr. Luke to speak of Jesus' appearances. He proves that he is alive. Irrefutable evidence, eyewitness evidence to the apostles. Now, we learn from other texts, and it is assumed here, that during these appearances, the disciples saw Jesus in the flesh. They touched him. They ate with him. They, he taught them about the kingdom of God over these 40 days. And the result was, of course, that this gaggle of fearful, cowering, depressed men who had no reason to live anymore are suddenly infused with joy and with courage like no one's ever seen, a courage that leads them to death for Christ. So Jesus providing the apostles with irrefutable proof that he is alive we find then secondly during this period, he instructs the apostles to wait in anticipation of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, beginning at verse 4. While he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Let's look back again at verse 4, while he was together with them, while he was staying with them. This Greek word indicates either eating, as a marginal uh, comment may say, either eating or staying with, and here the two merge together. We might use the word, he hung out with them for 40 days. That's the idea. Table fellowship, loving fraternity, but where's Luke pointing us? God the Father made this promise. Through the Old Testament prophets, he promised his people for centuries that he would send his Holy Spirit to them. This would be a day of distinctive change, an era-shifting moment when the Father would send the Holy Spirit to his people. The apostles had heard Jesus repeat this promise in his own words, and that's the point here at the end of verse 4 and verse 5. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's going to happen soon. Soon the Father will fulfill his promise. He will honor that promise to baptize his people in or with the Holy Spirit, as if the Holy Spirit water-like will fall down upon and wash and fill the apostles. God's salvation historical plan is nearing that pivotal turning point. Jesus prepares them for this. First, I'm alive. Proof after proof after proof, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And now, this moment is about to come. John baptized his disciples in, his disciples in water. Jesus is going to baptize his disciples in the Holy Spirit. So what are the disciples to do? They are to go back into Jerusalem, and they are to wait 
essentially that 10-day period after his 40 days of appearances until the day of Pentecost, they are to wait. I picture them like some scuba divers on the deck of a boat waiting to have their air tanks refilled. There's just, there's, they can talk, they can eat, they can sit there and wait, but there's not a lot they can do on their mission to go down into the water until their air tanks are full. So Jesus says, go into Jerusalem and wait. The Holy Spirit will come. You cannot do this in your own power. But you can proclaim the death and the resurrection of Christ in the days ahead in the power of the Spirit of God, and he will be sent. So irrefutable proofs that he is alive and instruction to wait We then see thirdly in these first eight verses, Jesus commissions the apostles to witness the gospel to all peoples in the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse six, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? Are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? Now, there's two ways to read this. We're going to take a little journey off into a side trail here as we think of this question. And there's two ways of interpreting this question. Many commentators believe the apostles' question is ignorant, if not immoral. That they are sinfully missing everything that Jesus intended them to catch. John Calvin famously commented that there are as many errors in this question as there are words. And that's not a compliment to the apostles. There is many errors in this question as there are words. Following Calvin, John Stott accuses the apostles, I quote, of dreaming of political dominion and of narrow nationalistic aspirations. Down the other trail, I'm more persuaded that this question is not only reasonable, but faithful to the promises of God. So there's a, there's a tremendous division here, obviously, but God promised, would we not all say, God promised King David that one of his offspring would rule over Israel from Mount Zion in an eternal kingdom. This is the promise that the Old Testament prophets made. The apostles did not, let's say, for certain, they did not understand all there was to know about the kingdom of God at this point in time. By no means. But what did they know? We must link the book of Acts to the book of Luke. It's the same author. He's bringing the two together. What did they know? They knew this, Luke 1. Behold, You will conceive in your womb, speaking to Mary, bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. What do we say of this Savior, this Jesus? He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. That's what they knew. They knew, Luke chapter 22, verse 28, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, Jesus says to the apostles, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Jesus does not say that in the future I may assign to you a kingdom, but he says right here, present tense, I assign to you a kingdom. This is Christ, the king of the kingdom, assigning to these apostles his kingdom. So the apostles, I think, back in Acts chapter 1 are saying, is it time? Is this the time that Messiah will come and restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time that you will begin to reign? They don't know about the ascension here. They don't know about the future of the church. They're just saying, this is time, right? I, I picture them here like little children on Christmas Day watching mom and dad drink coffee trying to wake up before the presents. And they're saying, isn't it time? Come on, isn't, it, isn't this it? We know this is the day. We know the presents are there under the tree. Isn't it time to open them? Isn't it time for Messiah to reign? Just as the Old Testament prophets said, just as you have taught us would be the case. Verse 7. Jesus says to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. How do you read that answer? Do you read that as a gentle rebuke to the disciples who have learned nothing about the nature of the kingdom of God over these 40 days? Does Jesus' answer indicate the disciples have figured out by, they should have figured out by now that this kingdom of God promised to Israel in the Old Testament has been canceled? That national Israel is no longer the Israel of God or that the kingdom is entirely figurative or the like? Is that how we would read this naturally, knowing what we know about what Luke has said, for instance, here in chapter 22? I think rather we might appeal with the Apostle Paul in Acts 11 to say, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. Has he rejected his people whom he foreknew? As he then says, I am a Benjamite, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Jesus' response, I think, indicates not that they are sinful, not that they are ignorantly confused after all that he has taught them, but rather that where they're off is timing. Timing is where they're wrong. What, how does he put it, verse 7? It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. Has set. That's a strange way to say you're totally off track. What it's saying is the Father has set a time indeed for what you are asking, but it's not now. I think that's the more natural way to read the text. So let's illustrate it this way. If you traveled by camel across the Sahara Desert and your sweaty kids said, when will we stop for the ice cream you promised? Would you say to them, let's not talk about that right now? I mean, I mean, you could, of course, to push them off, but you might say something more like, that's not going to happen. We're in the Sahara Desert. There's no ice cream stores here. You got this all wrong. But if you're traveling locally and the kids ask, when will we stop for that ice cream you promised, you could very well say, let's not talk about that right now. Jesus does not say, that's not going to happen. 
you've got this all wrong. What he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has indeed fixed. Just as he has promised, just as the scriptures have been consistent through the ages, the time is fixed, the Father knows it, you don't. So I would agree with Witherington who comments this way. This verse suggests that God will one day fulfill his promises to Israel. In fact, that God has already set that time and determined the integral before it by his own authority. But that human speculation about the timing of such an event is unfruitful since only God knows the timing and he's not revealing it to mortals. When Messiah comes to restore the kingdom to Israel is the Father's business. What we need to consider is that until Messiah establishes that kingdom, there is work to do. Verse 7, indeed, it is being established. It is present in some sense. There is a future, but let's get to the present here, verse 8. You will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Father has set a time. He has fixed a time. You are holding to the promises that I have described to you, but right now you need to go into Jerusalem and wait for power is to come upon you there. And that power will take you through the Holy Spirit to the ends of the earth to proclaim the mission. So the apostles are, who are to go nowhere, verse 4, are soon to go everywhere, verse 8. After that baptism in the Holy Spirit, they will be empowered to bear witness to the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ across all cultures, into all places, through every tongue, to proclaim that Jesus reigns. He is in heaven reigning and saving a people for his name. Back to the question of verse 6. God has not revoked a single promise to national Israel, as Romans 11 makes clear, nor has he redefined Israel. What has changed is that the nation of Israel will no longer serve in a mediatorial position between the nations and God as God's servant. That will now be not national Israel. That will now be Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Salvation is in his name. And it's in his name not only for Israel or those who join Israel. Now it is individually in a relationship with Jesus Christ for all people. That will change. Jesus now is the epitome of God's servant for the salvation of the nations. This shift and mission will have massive implications. Think of it. Think of the cause. The disciples are to join hands to bridge unsafe, unnatural, confusing boundaries that presently exist between people and divide them. They're to enter other cultures to bring together male and female, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, or red, yellow, brown, black, when white, all into one body. In doing this, they will shake the very foundations of idolatry 
And they will be accused of turning the world upside down. And a world set in its ways and in its idolatries will hit back hard. Because this message will shake the very foundations of how everyone thinks in the flesh. Be ready. You will be prepared as the Spirit comes. How will they respond to this glorious cause? Will they integrate their lives with what the risen Christ continues to do in drawing souls into his church? The book of Acts is a resounding, yes, we will. Yes, we will. To the death. And so it brings to us the question, is your life, follower of Christ, is your life synchronized with what the risen Christ is doing? This isn't a fantasy. It's not a myth. He lives today in physical form in the presence of the Father in a way we can't fully understand, but in a way that we trust because of his promise. He said he'd rise again, and he did. He ascended into heaven, and we know that he's at the Father's right hand. He is saving people and drawing them together to the light of his truth. This is real. If my life is not synchronized with that cause, I don't have a life. This is the ultimate cause. This preparation of the disciples, and then we transition at verse 9 to the ascension of Christ into heaven. Verse 9, after he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. That doesn't happen every day. This is a rare event. The fact that you haven't witnessed this doesn't mean it cannot happen. No one else defeated death the way Jesus did either, and he ascends into heaven in this way. It is very unusual. It is miraculous in that sense, but it's very real. As with the glory cloud that led Israel out of Egypt and to the promised land, clouds often link God's coming to the earth. The disciples see Jesus' earthly ministry then coming to a definitive and dramatic conclusion. If he just slipped away, walking off into the sunset, there'd be all kinds of critics on that side of it. It's very fitting for Christ who comes and takes on flesh to leave in a fairly dramatic way. And he does as he ascends into heaven. So he ascends in bodily form into heaven, reigning there today in human flesh, resurrected flesh, as we will one day enjoy when we enter his presence as as the people of God. In victory over death, in victory over the flesh, so he reigns today. He occupies a position of authority at God's right hand, and that is the point here as we consider the, the history of his ascension. Think of it in terms of Elijah and Elisha. Remember, Elijah was caught up to heaven as well. Again, very rare, but on occasion, this has taken place. Elijah was caught up into heaven. What did did Elisha want? A double portion of your spirit. That doesn't mean twice the spirit, but that means I want to be the inheritor of your spirit to carry on the work of God. Do you see the parallel here? Jesus is caught up into heaven and he's going to send his spirit upon his disciples to carry on his mission in his absence. Well, what would you be doing right now if 
your Savior just ascended into the clouds. I mean, there's really only one thing any of us would be doing. Verse 10, while he was going, they were gazing into heaven and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. And give about three or four reasons why these are clearly angelic beings. And they say then, verse 11, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. You have seen him ascend in bodily form, visually, into the heavens. He'll come back that same way. I mean, you might ask, why on earth do you think they're staring into heaven? I mean, clearly these angels aren't like asking for information here. It's clear why they're looking into heaven. What is it? It's a rhetorical question that is seeking to teach them. It is amazing and glorious that Christ has ascended to heaven. But the angels begin to instruct here and say, what we need to do now is to get busy. There are two reference points that are fixed here. Jesus' ascension from the Mount of Olives into heaven in a cloud with witnesses. And Jesus' return to the Mount of Olives from heaven in a cloud watched by many witnesses, Revelation 1 and verse 7. Now, between these two points in time, the disciples of Christ are commissioned to bear witness to God's salvation through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So God intends to bring chosen people of every tongue and tribe and nation to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And the risen Christ, sending His Holy Spirit, is commissioning these apostles to stand in His place and to speak this message to all nations. At verse 12, the apostles then, in obedience to Christ, returned to Jerusalem. So we've looked at his post-resurrection ministry, his ascension to heaven, and now the apostles returned to Jerusalem. Just a few moments on this, but verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. That is a, a short jaunt away. We don't know exactly where they were every day of this 40-year period, but we can be fairly certain they weren't stationed permanently in any sense in Jerusalem. Most of the resurrection appearances, the time of Jesus' teaching in his post-resurrection ministry took place in Galilee, far to the north, away from the authorities and away from Jerusalem. But it's game day. Jerusalem's going to be the launching pad of this movement, of this shift in salvation history. And so they make their way that short journey down uh, the slope of the Mount of Olives and up uh, the eastern slope of Jerusalem. They enter the city there as Jesus instructs to wait for the baptism of the Spirit. When they arrive, verse 13, verse 13, they arrive, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. We have a a list here of those that are the apostles. There's Peter and John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, not Iscariot, but Judas, the son of James. All these were continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. 
So these chosen apostles of Jesus, minus Judas Iscariot, gather in an upper room, probably accessed by an outside stairway, a little box on top of a little larger box, a room, an upper room, where they stationed themselves. And I think they probably slept and ate and talked and went for walks and did whatever you would normally do as you're living for several days in a community, but they're not sitting there doing nothing. They give themselves to prayer. They give themselves to devotion as they prepare for what is to come. And while awaiting the baptism of the Spirit, they give themselves, verse 14, to prayer. It is these apostles then, listed here in verse 13. These apostles, the first followers of Jesus who will take up that one glorious cause of joining the cosmic conquest of the risen Christ to redeem a people for his name. This is the glorious cause. They're ready, they're prepared, and by God's grace we'll pick up there next week as we look at their story as it continues after Christ's ascension to heaven. But as we consider Acts 1 and what this means for us, let me draw out the comments of two Bible scholars that I think point us in the right direction in, this application, in the application of this text to ourselves. Gordon Fee says the recurring motif that nothing can hinder this forward movement of the church empowered by the Holy Spirit makes us think that Luke also intended his readers to see this as a model for their existence. So in other words, we're not just talking about the apostles and a nice little story about what happened with them, but that this is a model for our existence. This is our cause. And the fact that Acts is in the canon further makes us think that surely this is the way the church is always intended to be, evangelistic, joyful, empowered by the Holy Spirit. I say amen. Amen. Another commentator, Daryl Box, says what the early church said and did was rooted in and connected to activity in which the risen Jesus was involved. This was Jesus' presence on earth. His influence was truly there and felt. Without Jesus and his work, one cannot make sense of the church's existence and activity. Let's broaden that. Let's make it more personal. I would say to you, follower of Jesus Christ, Without Jesus and his work, one cannot make sense of anything in life. Every way, every cause ends in utter futility unless we understand the sovereign Christ reigns. When we get disconnected from what God is doing, we become so quickly discouraged, Lazy, self-indulgent, petty in our life orientation. We become overwhelmed with our own purposes and our own self-serving interests. When we get disconnected from the reality that Christ is reigning and saving a people for his name, we can get entirely consumed with what's happening down here on the carpet. On this earth for what will only burn and end. But when we unite 
with what Christ is doing by his saving power. When we rejoice in his victories, that grand cause fills our lives with hope and with zeal because it's real, it's alive. The Spirit of God is doing this. Jesus is reigning. And I'm linking my life up there to him. He reigns at God's right hand, saving a people through the witness of his followers. Jesus will return bodily to earth. He will set up his kingdom. The mission will be complete. And this gives us hope and purpose. It is this reality that must orient all of our other interests as well. Our participation in every other cause. Whether that's the cause of racial issues or politics or coronavirus or whatever else it is. These causes can overwhelm the greater grand cause. It should go the other way around. This cause of Christ should filter down into how we deal with everything else. I think it must be heart-wrenching to the Spirit of God when we talk as Christians about what we're going to do about racism and it is empty of gospel. It's just how we're going to socially change things and no one comes back or someone's not coming back to Christ crucified and risen as if that's not an answer. I think it is a grief to our God when we talk about coronavirus without evangelism. When we don't think about the implications to the nations. We don't think about the implications to our neighbors and how encouraging it is to hear the witness of some within our assembly from time to time that I've heard that use this opportunity to point to Christ crucified and risen. What a grief it must be to God when politics are pursued by His people as if the the kingdom that will last is this one, is the United States. Forgive me for sounding like a broken record, repeating again and again, America will not last long. It had a shelf life from day one. It's just a small blip on the line of history. May we look to the kingdom that will never end. A kingdom of which we are citizens. And we thank God for the history of this nation. We thank God for the freedoms that we have. We thank God for the prosperity that is here. We thank God for the opportunities that this nation affords. This nation is temporal. We serve a kingdom that will never end. May that sense pervade the way that we talk about everything else it should we naturally get anxious about so many things securing housing and clothing and food and transportation we get anxious about making grades and friends and raising families and advancing careers and pursuing health and travel and communications and entertainment We naturally link into causes that help us improve our lives and the lives of those around us, and there's nothing evil about any of this innately. The tragedy is to have our heads so focused on the temporal and the mundane, so focused on the causes of this dying world that we fail to look up enough to look long and to know where we're all headed. May the Lord help us see the continuing conquest of the risen Christ 
and to know that this is the grand cause. cause. May the Holy Spirit empower us to consciously orient our lives to serving Christ's grand, saving, eternal purposes in this world. Consciously laboring for His glory and for His kingdom. And for those that are separated from Christ, for those that do not know Christ as Savior among us, let me just say respectfully, but pointedly, you got to deal with the resurrection of Jesus. You're going to have to come to terms with the fact that He defeated death. It is evident. There are proofs that are unimpeachable that this man said, I will rise from the dead, and he did. You've got to come to terms with the risen Christ. You must answer to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon his people and the transformation that the Holy Spirit has upon those who come to know Christ as Savior, not upon all of them, some of them false, some of them struggling with sin in ways that are very outward and evident, but yet dealing with the fact that the Holy Spirit has come and is transforming people. You need to come to terms with Jesus' promise that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth before His throne. He is the risen Christ. He is reigning and drawing a people to His name. He will also be the judge of all the earth. And you've got to come to terms with who He is in His resurrection power and where you will land as you come before Him someday, bowing the knee before Lord Christ. And so what is our calling here? Our call, based on the call of Jesus, is not now what we want is your money. What we want to do is make your life miserable. What we want to do is now begin to control you and tell you what you're supposed to do and not do so that you serve some outside agenda. No. The call is say, would you like to be relieved of your sin? Would you like to be separated from the guilt that now resides upon you as you come to stand before Christ and bow before Him as Lord and Savior? And that's not because we have something to sell. It's because we have something to tell you about. We have news. It's free. It's rich. It's life-transforming. It is glorious. And so I would just say to you who know not Christ, come to the feet of the risen Savior. Repent of your sin, your way, your self-orientation. Lift your eyes higher than you and come to faith in Him, crucified for the forgiveness of sins and risen in glorious power and authority as the sovereign of the universe. Coming to that message, embracing that news, trusting Christ as your Savior is to turn from everything you are and know to embrace everything that brings joy and hope and eternal security. And it's free. We call you to come. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you draw to yourself those who need Jesus as Savior. And Lord, how I want to confess my sin of not seeing the cause as clearly as I should. I pray that we would come before your throne as your people and be reminded here of the reality.
There's realities about us, and there's lots of causes and lots of divisions these days, and they're all real. They're also, every last one of them, temporal and small compared to the cause of our risen Savior. 